This is Guns and Butter. Look at all the leaders, you know, from Peter the Great to to Yeltsin. All of them, all of them, were constantly thinking about the West and what the West does in Europe, 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 Europe. That was the big thing. The important, you know, direction was westward. Um, the people around Putin think very differently. They see the South, they see the East, including Siberia, and they even see the North, the the Arctic Circle, which they think is extremely important. So they want to turn, shift Russia away towards another um, civilizational model, and they also believe that the Russian values should be different from the ones that the West advocates. So it's a desire for a uniqueness of fully uh, fostering a distinct, separate Russian civilizational realm. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Andrei Ryevsky, who blogs as the Saker. Today's show, In Search of Russia, the Saker was born in a military family of white Russian refugees in Western Europe, where he lived most of his life. After completing two college degrees in the United States, he returned to Europe, where he worked as a military analyst until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. After retraining as a software engineer, he returned to the United States, where he now lives with his family. He has been blogging since 2007 as The Saker, and his analytical essays are now widely distributed on the Internet. He is the author of The Essential Saker, From the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World. Today we discuss the uniqueness of Russia, both its historical differences and similarities with the West, 300 years of Western domination, the Soviet period, the wars in Chechnya, Russian military defenses, and Atlantic integration versus Eurasian sovereignty. Saker, welcome to the show again. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. In your article, Searching for Russia, you write that Russia is different in a profound and unique way. Being an heir to the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as Byzantium, Russian roots are in antiquity as opposed to the West, whose roots, according to you, are in the Middle Ages. Could you explain this history? Oh, well, that's, we're talking about a long chunk of, uh, we're talking about practically a millennium and more even, but I'll try to make it simple and short. Basically, uh, first of all, Rome and the Western civilization and the consciousness, um, we're taught that Rome uh, was sacked in 410 AD and the Western Roman Empire, 476. And after that, uh, begin uh, the Middle Ages. Well, for Russia, that sequence doesn't work at all, because uh, what happened is that the Roman Empire was separated in two parts, an eastern and a western one. Um, and in the west, we're told that there's a Byzantine Empire. But if you look closer at it, there was never such thing as a Byzantine Empire. There was simply a Roman Empire that continued to exist, the very same Roman Empire, not a different entity continued to exist in the East, and existed until the fall of the Constantinople in 1453. In other words, the first thing to realize is that the Roman Empire did not end in the 5th century. It survived by a full thousand years. So while Europe was undergoing the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, uh, Rome continued to exist. 
And that Rome played a crucial role in uh, Russian history and culture because it is really what um, I would say the, uh, the, um, the arrival of Roman Christianity is what created the Russian nation. There were different, uh, I don't mean that in an ethnical sense, I mean that in a cultural sense. At the end of the 10th century, uh, a Russian ruler named Vladimir accepted uh, to become a, a Christian. He became an Orthodox Christian, an Eastern Christian. And uh, Rome basically um, infused Russia with its at least um, religious tradition. And that, uh, that tradition was passed on to Russia. And if we call Rome antiquity, um, because there never were any Middle Ages, properly speaking, in Russia, there was also no Renaissance which is, if you want, the, the emergence from the Middle Ages. So what we have is a country that was founded by the infusion of uh, Roman civilization into it that never had any Middle Ages or a, a Renaissance, and that went basically from antiquity, you could argue, straight into modernity, uh, because um, the fact that the process which was so strong and important for the Western history, which is the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, simply never happened in Russia. And to strengthen that also differentiation, another thing happened is that to, to the degree that the Roman civilization played a key role in the founding of Russia as a culture, the founding of Russia as a state is also due to a process which the West didn't know, which is uh, the invasion coming from the east of the Tatar-Mongol Empire, um, who occupied Russia and who stayed there for 250 years. And uh, basically, that is what united different Russian princes into one state. And I would say that the Russian state, in terms of its uh, polity, military tactics, etc., was a product of uh, the Tatar-Mongol Empire. So we have Roman origins uh, spiritually and Tatar-Mongol origins um, in a political sense. That's dramatically different from what the history of the Western Europeans was during the same time period. So while Russians are externally, they look European because they're mostly white, you know, they don't have a different skin color, I would argue that they're extremely different culturally. That's very interesting. I was just about to ask you how significant uh, was the Asian Tatar Mongol invaders in the creation of the modern Russian state, and I guess you're saying that it was quite significant. It was extremely significant. Um, first of all, the ancient Russia lost about half of its population. It was a very uh, brutal period for Russia. And the original cities of ancient Russia, for instance, the best known is Kiev, suffered tremendously, and new cities appeared that were uh, capable of resisting that. Um, they learned from their occupiers and then eventually kicked them out. And um, the Tartars forced upon the Russian nation uh, forced a political model upon that nation to to make it possible for that nation to resist and eventually prevail, which is what happened. You write that the brand of Christianity received by Russia was the Roman, not the Frankish one. What Correct. is the difference? What's the Frankish one? Uh, this is what in the West would be called Roman Catholicism or Western Christianity or Latin Christianity. And uh, this is a key to understand why there were so many wars between, uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say wars between Russia and the West, but I should say why there were so many attempts by the West to subdue and conquer Russia. 
is that Russia practically from its foundation was in opposition to the West in terms of its values, civilizational outlook, uh, ethos. I mean, Russians never were truly part of, of the Western culture. Now, I know some people are going to be shocked when I say that because they're going to say, what are you talking about? What about Tchaikovsky? What about Dostoevsky? Uh, what about, you know, uh, so many, how should I put it, representatives of the Russian culture that played such a big role and were very much influenced by the West? If you look at the architecture of St. Petersburg, the penetration of Masonic ideas in the Russian aristocracy, that is all true. There was a profound inter. Per, uh, I don't know if you can say that in English, uh, um, interpenetration between the West and Russia. But that interpenetration affected primarily the elites, the aristocracy, uh, the courts. Uh, so it was, this was a reality at the top, not at all at the bulk of the Russian nation. The 90% of the Russians were not involved in that process at all. So that also creates an interesting dynamic, an alienation and a, and a profound alienation of the masses versus their elites. Um, it took a dramatic turn um, during the 17th century on an internal Orthodox dispute where I, I don't want to go into complicated dogmatic issues here, but I would just say that the people had one outlook on Orthodoxy and most of the elite another one, although I'm simplifying that. Some of the elites you know, were on the other side, etc. Um, there was basically I would say a schism, a chasm breaking open and gradually getting bigger and bigger and bigger between the rulers of Russia, starting with particularly Peter I, the early 18th, late 17th century, up to the revolution. So there was tensions vertically in Russia and tensions east versus west. You have started to explain this, but how have the Russian ruling elites differed from the Russian people, particularly in the last 300 years? Well, a couple of things happened at the same time. Uh, Peter I wanted to change the face of Russia, as he would have put it, and his supporters do, to modernize it and open it to the West. I would simply say westernize. Why not use that term? Um, a lot of the old elites were at that moment moved away. The old aristocracy, for instance, the old nobility, was moved away from the centers of power. He created a much more recent uh, new aristocracy and ruling class. At the same time, he introduced a number of reforms which profoundly alienated the people in their culture and their religious feelings and, and the way the society should work. I mean, things which can look funny, uh, you know, when we speak nowadays, for instance, uh, having beards. For Orthodox Christians, it's very important for men to have a beard because this is how, it's, you know, you're supposed to uphold the image uh, and likeness and image to God that the way you were created. Well, Peter the Great said it's a barbaric thing. That wisdom is not in a beard, but in the brain, and he, and he forced other people to shave their beards. Um, for the Russians of that period, that was very traumatic and very insulting. So, and it, it manifested itself in that kind of things. Secondly, of course, um, there is the fact that um, how would you call that in English? I suddenly, I have a word that's missing. The um, oh, I miss a word here. Krepasnoye prava, and it means serfdom. Serfdom. There we go. Serfdom was also something that profoundly alienated um, many Russian people. So there were event after event after event which gradually broke more and more the masses from the elites. And I would add something paradoxical here. A lot of czars perceived that and wanted to defend and had that sensitivity to try to, um, I would say, represent or cater to or be concerned for what the masses wanted. And that created yet another problem, the opposition between the monarchs and the aristocrats. 
which is very much overlooked in, in Western historiography. There's always an assumption that there's the monarch and the courts and the aristocracy, and they're all together. You know, it's absolutely not true in Russian history. Uh, monarchs were typically, the principle of aristocracy and monarchy were opposed to each other, and a lot of monarchs were killed because of that. So yet again, this, this schism in, in Russian culture and the Russian nation created yet another tension now among the elites. So it's a multi-layered cake of, of, of contradictions which exploded eventually truly dramatically in the 20th century. What was the point you were making about serfdom alienating the masses? Well, for instance, serfdom basically was, generally feudalism was an import from the West. Um, Russians are, and have been in history, very freedom-loving, and bordering on the anarchist tendencies were very strong. Uh, you know, self-determination, autonomy, local rule, self-rule. There were very, very um, numerous examples of, of self-rule by cities or by group of people. That's, for instance, how the Cossacks had it. The famous Cossacks were very highly autonomous in their culture and very jealous of that freedom. So when the center tried to impose uh, feudalism and serfdom upon the Russian people, a lot of Russians fled. They fled to the borderlands where it was safer and you were further away from from the central powers. Other went to Siberia. Um, the same thing when I mentioned that schism inside the Orthodox Church. To make it very simple, there was an old right and a new right. Uh, I'm not going to go into details of what separated the two. A lot of the old ritualists actually emigrated from Russia. They went from all sorts of countries. Some went to Turkey, some went eventually even to the United States, and even South America still has nowadays uh, different groups who fled that authoritarian central power in Russia. I'm speaking with author and analyst The Saker. Today's show, In Search of Russia, I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that there is no way to consider the Soviet period as a continuation of the pre-1917 Russia. Do you consider the Russian revolutions of 1917 as a complete break with historical Russia? Yes, but I have to say, first of all, there are two revolutions in 1917. There's a first break uh, in February of 1917. There was a coup organized by the elites against the Tsar. And then in October or November, by the old calendar, there's yet another revolution where the Bolsheviks seize power from uh, the Democrats. So the Bolsheviks, contrary to what people, mostly people think, never overthrew the Tsar. They overthrew the Masonic government of, of a gentleman named Kerensky, who was representing typically what we today would call the oligarchy or the, the globalist, uh, you know, oligarchs. That's what they were, really. Very wealthy, rich people. Remember I told you that the elites after Peter had a different agenda than the czars, and that was typical. So the first the oligarchy overthrew the czar, and then the Bolsheviks overthrew the oligarchs. And um, yes, it is a break, though it has certain common um, features with the traditional Russia. It's impossible to completely say that there's no continuity. Um, after all, it's the same cities, the same language, the people were involved. But on a philosophical level, I would compare that, uh, that difference. Um, the, the image that I always use is a healthy tissue versus um, a malignant tumor. A tumor shares a lot of the DNA with the tissue that it um, came from, yet it has crucial differences, and these crucial differences are sufficient in many cases to actually kill the host that is uh, suffering from that condition. And that's what um, communism and the Soviet period was for Russia. It was an anti-Russia, 
but with a certain degree of commonality on the DNA, definitely. The, for instance, the values of, of community, of collectivism, uh, of fairness. I mean, all these ideas are very much rooted in Russian culture. So the communists were not stupid, and they didn't come up with only things that would shock Russians. Uh, they said, you know, uh, we'll give the land back to the people, uh, back freedom, abolish inequalities. All these things speak profoundly to the Russian culture. But it comes in an atheist uh, mold, for instance. The, the virulent atheism of the Bolsheviks was something that profoundly shocked Russia, which traditionally was a very religious and pious society. Uh, secondly, a lot of the early generation of Bolsheviks were ethnic Jews. Uh, and careful here, there's also a mistake that people make. The fact that a majority of Bolsheviks were Jews does not mean the majority of Jews were Bolsheviks. A majority of pre-revolutionary uh, Russian Jews were not Bolsheviks. They were usually socialists, Mensheviks, and Bundists, and all sorts of different parties. But it is true, and even Putin recently confirmed that, speaking in front of a group of uh, Orthodox rabbis in Moscow, he said about 80 to 85 percent of uh, the first-generation Bolsheviks were Jews. And that's factually true, and these people were extremely Russophobic. They hated the Russian culture, which they saw as anti-Semitic. Uh, they hated Christianity, and Orthodoxy was a very traditional form of Christianity. Um, so even though um, most of traditionally anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews was something that you saw more often in what is today the Ukraine, which is southern western Russia, um, when the Bolsheviks seized power, they truly opened a persecution. I would say that I think there was an attempt to really truly commit a cultural genocide of Russia by these people. So when you have that happening, you can't say that this is just a continuity of the same old regime under a new heading or wrapping. Do you believe that the 1917 revolution, that is the uh, the second one, the communist revolution, yeah. uh, was not inherently Russian but imported from the West? Oh yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, Trotsky was an agent of the United States. Uh, Lenin had contacts with the Germans. It was definitely an import. What happened was that basically once the, the oligarch or the liberals or the Democrats, if you want to call them, took power, the country went to such a degree of chaos that I would compare that to somebody with, which has a severe immune deficiency. And it wasn't that hard to infect it with something. And uh, the most organized, I would say the intellectually superior group, actually, were definitely the Bolsheviks. If you look at the writings of Lenin or Trotsky, these guys are smart. They had a vision. They had a plan. They had a global explanation of what's happening in history. Uh, when I compare them to the infinite mediocrity of the non-entities who took power early that year, the Democrats, it's no surprise that uh, they lost power, you know, eight months after, after seizing it. They were just good enough to destroy the empire. That's all they could do. They couldn't build or fix anything. You write that, quote, in a cultural and spiritual sense, the Russian nation was oppressed to various degrees roughly between 1666 and 1999. That is 330 years, a long period mm -hmm. by any standards. How would you characterize this oppression? I would say, first of all, you shouldn't take those dates, you know, as a instant binary switch from non-oppression to oppression and then back again. So it's, it's just rough dates. I chose them because they were symbolic of two events. One is the Council of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church in 1666 and 1667, which I think played a catastrophic role in the history of the Russian Orthodox Church. And 1999 is the coming to power of Putin. So that's where I took those two figures. 
Um, that impression was basically that um, throughout these years, a different civilizational model was imposed upon the Russian people. It was um, the Western aristocratic model. Then it was the Western oligarchic model. Then I call it Western, the Western Bolshevik Marxist model. And then at the last end, we had again a return to the, uh, the, to the rule of the oligarchs uh, during the Yeltsin years. During all those um, years, the top of the country, I would say there were moments where, of course, it's fluctuated. Some were much more patriotic than others, much more respectful than others of Russian culture. And some rulers were profoundly you know, not interested in the Russian culture or hated it even. So it's not uniform. I would say that probably for the first time, most Russians felt that, that the person in power in Russia represented them and not some kind of elite above them. I would say it's probably Vladimir Putin. You write that for the first time in centuries, the ruler of the Kremlin is not somebody whom the West can hope to subdue or co-opt. Hence the hysterical paranoia about Putin and his evil Ruskies. Are you amazed at the histrionics in the press and by everyone else about Russia and Putin? No, actually I'm not. I mean, I'm amazed that it's that they actually do it, but somewhere... I am not, because it makes sense. I mean, you have to realize that, look at the history of, of Western attempts to subdue, invade, occupy, uh, you know, and enslave Russia. A lot of them happened during the years when Russia was weak due to those internal contradictions. I mean, I would say, for instance, um, Russia had major problems internally during the Napoleonic Wars. Russia had major problems internally during the Crimean War. Um, Russia had fantastic problems during the First World War, which was stopped because of the revolution. But had there not been a revolution, Russia would have won that one also. Um, so what happens is the West truly fears a united Russia. There would be um, a profound bond linking the people, the masses, and the, uh, the person in power, which is today's Putin. He embodies that. And uh, this is simply a country that is going to say flat out, no, no, we are not going to follow your model. And Putin has been outspoken about that. He's the first person that I'm aware of, um, certainly in the West, that, that, that has marked people, that says not only that we disagree on specific tactical issues, we actually reject your civilizational model. Uh, now, there have been others. There have been, um, for instance, uh, part of the Muslim world, particularly the Iranian Islamic Republic has rejected the Western model. There is a model in Latin America, you know, 21st century uh, socialism or Chavism and all, all that movement. There are different movements that challenge the Western uh, cultural um, supremacy and legitimacy even. But Russia is the one that comes armed with nuclear weapons, the largest country on earth, the largest reserves of, uh, you know, fossil fuel and, and all sorts of uh, riches. It makes it very powerful. And the West is frightened because Russia, it is true that Napoleon, uh, his attack ended up with Russians in the center of Paris and Hitler, you know, essentially brought the Russians to downtown Berlin. So there is a fear, I think, a very profound fear that Russia could eventually strike out and finally, you know, if not attack, that at least um, crush the empire by refusing to be subdued. And I think that fear is founded. I think this is a founded fear, and I think this is exactly what we're witnessing today. I think the simple fact of existing independently uh, is a mortal threat to the world hegemon. 
Has Russia ever lost a war? And could you mention some of the very big wars against Russia? There have been so many, I can't keep them straight. There's a lot of them. I would say that the closest uh, thing to a, a loss of a war, I would say, is the Crimean War. Although even that is complicated, the, the consequences were pretty rapidly mitigated. Um, I would argue that Russia won against Japan, and I know that most Japanese historians see it that way, but in the West, it's considered that this was a war that Russia lost. Uh, Russia can definitely lose battles, and even sometimes wars take a very long time until they, they prevail. They fought a long time against the Swedes, for instance. So it's not that Russia is uh, necessarily invincible, but I think that Russia is truly inconquerable to begin with due to geography. And secondly, I do think that uh, the Russian culture is so um, profoundly uh, filled with military ethos and tradition that uh, it really creates a different kind of soldier. Um, it's, it's hard to explain in a couple of words, but the mindset of the Russian soldier is very different from the, from the mindset of the Western soldier. Uh, it's, it's a cultural thing. It's, it's collectivism again. It's the willingness to sacrifice your life for the greater good. Um, that's why you see the kind of resistance that you saw, for instance, during World War II in horrible battles uh, that Western military simply never provided. You've written that every one of those wars was accompanied by a frenzied Russia bashing campaign in the media and literature, and all these wars were represented as being fought in the name of lofty European values against Mm -hmm. the barbaric hordes, etc. Sure. You also say that in the years when Russia was not the object of a military attack, she was always the object of economic sanctions under one pious pretext or another. Now, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Russia, for instance, well, we can make a short survey, for instance. There was something called a Northern Crusade. It was when the, the papacy decided to either subdue or forcibly convert or kill um, all, all the Orthodox people in um, the East. Uh, at that time, from a, from a traditionalist papist point of view, Orthodox Christians are considered schismatics, rebels against uh, the Holy Father, and that has been an ancient dream of, of, of Latin Christianity to finally, in one way or another, absorb Orthodox Christianity. Uh, so that's, you, you could say, the Western um, religious uh, vendetta. Then comes the political one. After Freemasonry truly gained power in, in the UK and in France, Russia was seen as uh, the backward, uh, you know, obscurantist monarchy, Christian monarchy, that was considered a threat uh, to the Western order. So therefore, again, Russia became a target. And a large part of the Russian aristocracy actually even uh, joined, uh, became uh, members of various Masonic lodges. And yet, when the war broke out between Russia and France, those very same Russians actually went and fought and died. So even those uh, westernized, and that's not English, but I will say it, Masonicized Russian aristocracy, they still fought for their country. And if you know, you read War and Peace, you see that there's real patriotism, even amongst those circles. So that was, again, uh, a defeat of the ideology of the day in the West. Then we have, of course, the episode with Hitler. Uh, who wanted to create a united Europe, who had the same exact rhetoric as today the Ukrainians, which is, you know, the, there's those Asian-Mongol hordes in the East, and we have to protect Western civilization against those barbarians. And he added on top of that a racial theory, which said that Russians were uh, subhumans, untermensch, and uh, he had this uh, 
drive to the east to give new lands to the master race. Um, these things that today sound ridiculous for us, but let's be honest, that was the mainstream Western ideology during World War II. There's a reason why Hitler took all of Europe without much of an effort, let's be honest. So that was the order of the day, and again Russia resisted. And now we went to the period after that where democracy, uh, Western capitalism became the big ideology, and Russia was communist yet again. You had to defend the free world against the commies, you know. It's always... There's always a very justifiable and uh, ideological explanation, which not only permeates the newspapers, but eventually permeates literature and the general consciousness. I mean, I really think um, there is an anti-Russian racism in many circles in the West. I've seen it myself many times, particularly when people don't know that I myself am Russian. Uh, I've heard it. I've seen it. That's there. It's a mix. And phobia in two senses of both fear and loathing. It's a combination of both. I'm speaking with author and analyst, The Saker. Today's show, In Search of Russia. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You've written that gradually and insidiously, the hatred and fear of Russia became part of the Western cultural identity. And you've already basically been talking about this. Don't you think that this is pathological? You know, it's hard for me to judge, to speak of a pathology of, it, of, of uh, an entire mix of society, because the West is not uniform. Uh, that I should actually say, that's actually probably a very important point. What I described is mostly Northern European, uh, at least the recent phenomena. The Southern Europe has been very different in its, um, its attitude towards Russia. And I also should have probably mentioned the competition between the British Empire and Russia, who was what prevented, in many instances, the British Empire from ruling the way it wanted. So there was a very, there still is a rabid Russophobia in, in, in the English, the British elites nowadays. Uh, I would say much stronger than the United States even. Um, so I don't think it's a pathology. I think it's uh, it's a consequence of a history where there's no clear natural border. Russians are white. Um, they speak an Indo-European language, which is close to, you know, other Slavic languages and, and further to the West, like Polish or Serbian or Bulgarian. So on one hand, Russian look, I was speaking as a non-Russian now, I take that hat on. They're kind of like us, but then they're frustratingly not like us. They always end up not doing the right thing. So people get frustrated. And secondly, they judge the Russian people, the Russian culture by purely Western standards. And of course, they get it wrong. Um, it's very interesting for me during the Cold War to observe that most the biggest authorities on Russia and the Soviet Union were, were almost without exception people who profoundly hated Russia and hated the Russian culture. I think of Richard Pipes as a perfect example of that kind of Russophobe. Um, I would stress, by the way, of somebody's interest, that Professor Stephen Cohen is probably right now one of the best specialists on Russia in the United States, and he does not, repeat, not at all display that anti-Russian character that most uh, Russian specialists or Soviet specialists during the um, Cold War were almost always showing. You know, the Russians were bad guys. You could really tell that. Uh, he does not. So I, re I highly recommend him. I respect the man. And uh, whatever he says today is, is very always worthy list to listen to. So, yeah, I think there is a, a global, you know, this, this has been going on for centuries, roughly a millennium. And um, that's a lot of, a lot of conflict. And it ends up, you know, building the image of, of, of an enemy. Sadly, but true. 
Earlier, you made reference to Western Freemasonry. What would be a simple explanation of Freemasonry? I think there's an impossibility of simply explaining <laughs> in a rapidly what Freemasonry is. I would say it is, uh, without going into details, it is a worldview, first and foremost. It used to be an organization, of course, still is. But it is the idea of progress, of civilization, of rational thinking. It's a very specific approach to religion, which I don't want to characterize here. It is the ideas of enlightenment. Um, basically, it's the mainstream ideology today. Um, the values of, of the century today right now come straight out of, of Masonic lodges. Uh, but honestly, I cannot give a quick answer. I mean, that would take a full hour to even begin to outline. It's a very complex phenomenon, and it was different in different countries. You know, the French masonry is not the British, is not the Russian, is not the Italian. They're all very different. It's not the American. So it's a very complex. I cannot, you know, summarize into one, but I would just say that this ideology at its core is profoundly anti-Christian, um, is profoundly anti-monarchist, and... Um, that a lot of Russian, uh, it is something that's typically an ideology for the elites. At least it was. It was the people who self-identified themselves as being the elites, the, the thinkers, the, or the, those who think free, who are um, free from prejudices and, you know, obscurantist uh, prejudice that usually they would say are in religious circles or monarchist circles. You've written that Putin's rule is a kind of very traditional Russian neo-monarchy, and that Putin mm -hmm. has found a way to combine the external forms of democracy with the internal characteristics of Russian monarchy. Could you explain that a little bit? Yes. I would make a comparison. Um, it's not a perfect one, but just to illustrate the point, look at modern Japan, or even more Japan during, you know, the, the 70s, probably. Um, you had a country which is a democracy, but really the country is run, the moral authority of the emperor is extremely high. Um, and that is the same thing that's happening today in Russia. For the first time, I would say, if I had to say where the real center of power of Putin is, it is the popular consensus behind him. And he's extremely aware of it, and he caters to it very directly. He reaches out on a regular basis, and he's very skillful at that. For instance, uh, it's very interesting, he has very long shows at least once a year, which is a call-in shows where people call in or write in and the audience, um, you know, ask some questions. And the kind of language he uses is a very popular one. Uh, he, he tries, I think he's not misrepresenting himself. He's just presenting himself as somebody that is close to the people. And the people actually believe it this time around. Uh, all rulers always try to do that, but I don't think uh, very many were successful, at least not in Russia. So... Um, I think it's Solzhenitsyn who said that the spectrum of all powers range from regimes whose authority is based on strength to those whose strength is based on authority. And I would say that the strength of the Putin regime is based on its moral authority with the people, far more than the outcome of an election or, um, let's say, you know, what kind of money he has or doesn't have or, 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 or the political party that supposedly is the main party backing him. It's much more complicated than that. And um, I think that caters to a need Russians identify and like that. Russia is a country that has to be led by a strong person, for sure. But it has to be a person that people feel is on the side of the people and not, you know, trying to cater to the agenda of the wealthy elites. You write that the Chechen leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, created a personal guard for Vladimir Putin. What is that all about? 
It is absolutely true he did. I mean, it wasn't very much commented, but what he did is uh, he took uh, basically most of the elite's forces, uh, I think there was 10,000 people at that time, in a stadium. It's it's on the internet. You can find that. I have it on my blog somewhere. And he basically, uh, these people resigned their commission altogether officially so as to not be bound by their uh, legal obligations and swore essentially uh, an oath of allegiance to Vladimir Putin as a person, not to the president of Russia. Uh, Kadyrov clearly said that. He said, you know, this is a, it is a, a guard that is, that is at the service of Vladimir Putin, and anywhere you tell us to go, whatever orders you tell us to fulfill, we will do it. But if you can interrupt here, if you want, I can look up that, that quote and quote him more accurately. Do you want me to find that? Oh, okay, sure. Okay, so here is what I'm quoting now, direct translation of the words of the leader of, of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov. He said, today I repeat the words um, of Ahmad Haji, which is his father, who was murdered by terrorists. And he continues, he says, it's time to make an informed choice. And we say to the entire world that we're the combat infantry of Vladimir Putin. If we receive an order, we're actually proved that this is so. For 15 years, Putin has been helping our people now. You and I, and we have 10,000s of people specially trained, ask the national leader of Russia to consider us a special voluntary unit of the commander-in-chief, ready to defend Russia and the stability of her borders, accomplish a combat mission of any complexity. We realize that our country has regular army, air force, navy, and nuclear forces. However, there are tasks that can be solved only by volunteers, and we will solve them." Unquote. Um, so this is absolutely fascinating because a number of things, um, it came to almost a genocide of Chechens, I would say, during the two wars, um, between Russia and Chechnya, when Chechnya was ruled by uh, Wahhabis extremists. Um, and what happened was a very unique phenomenon in history. Two men decided to trust each other to stop that, Putin and the father of Ramzan Kadyrov, Ahmad Khaji Kadyrov. And um, the Chechen nation, it was, it's amazing. Chechens used to be despised as being, you know, those Wahhabi terrorists, etc. Now it's, they're, they're even fighting in the Donbass, defending, uh, you know, Russian Orthodox people, although they're themselves Muslims, against the, the Ukrainian Nazi uh, death squads. I mean, that's how much it changed. And Putin is extremely popular in Chechnya, as, as is the leader of Chechnya. And he basically returned to an old model, which is... The model, um, the, the, the Cossacks had the same model, which is basically the central power gives us very large autonomy that we're responsible for the border and we'll be the shock units defending the country if needed. And that's basically what uh, Chechens nowadays, they play a central role in Russian special forces, for instance, uh, who have fully integrated Chechen special forces inside the Russian ones. We've seen them in Syria. They were before in Lebanon. Chechen volunteers fight in uh, in the Donbass. Uh, they became sort of the shock troops, I would say, of of uh, of Russia as a country. And in that case, um, Putin never accepted it, of course, because he has to be you know function within the the bounds of 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 law in Russia. But the message was a very powerful one, which means you know if somebody tries to say organize a revolution in Russia, uh, I'm going to send ten thousand of my men. To, to protect Putin as a person. And if you look at the video uh, on my website, um, it's uh, subtitled in English. You take a good look at the guys that showed up at that stadium. These are tough, tough, tough soldiers. You don't want to fight them. 
Chechens, even when Russians hated them during the war against uh, the Wahhabis, never did the Russians say the Chechens were cowards or weak. They're extremely tough. So that is the new function of, of, of Chechnya. It is the Chechens have become sort of the the policemen of the Caucasus, and they would be at the forefront, for instance, if um, the Wahhabi insurgency in Syria and Iraq, if it suddenly turned north in the worst case at all, uh, Chechens would be uh, absolutely the forefront of, of fighting that. They are now, the entire military of the Chechens is sort of a, an elite force, uh, and because they're Muslims, it's much more intelligent to um, use them in Muslim countries because there's a brotherhood between Muslims that non-Muslims would not share. Well, how did the Wahhabis get in control of Chechnya in the first place? It was, yet again, uh, thanks to the Democrats. Just as the Bolsheviks uh, you know, seized Russia easily when Kerensky was in power, during the time of Yeltsin, uh, there was such a chaos that uh, people were disgusted with the center. And it's important to remember, uh, Yeltsin had just, uh, you know, organized a bloodbath in Moscow in 1993 against the parliament. He basically did a completely illegal coup, and the West applauded him, of course, enthusiastically for, quote-unquote, restoring democracy. Uh, The regime that he put in power was corrupt to an infinite degree, and it was a violent regime. It began by disagreement on the the proceeding that the money that would come from uh, gas and oil in Chechnya and uh, basically, the, the regime around Yeltsin said, we're not going to negotiate with these people, we'll just crush them militarily. Uh, what they had forgotten is that it's one thing to shoot at a parliament with tanks in Moscow, and quite another to fight uh, a small nation, admittedly, but an extremely tough one. I don't wish anybody to fight against the Chechens. And on top of that, because the locals uh, were so corrupt, the Chechens had inherited a huge amount of weapons from the Soviet military that they took under their control when they declared independence. The city of Grozny was a very heavily built, strong city with several um, fortified centers at the center of the city where they could fight very well. And the Chechens were motivated. They were not only motivated by Wahhabis, they also didn't want to deal with the kind of regime that was in Moscow. So the Wahhabis, they came in there, they injected themselves there, just as they injected themselves in Syria, for instance, and in other places. They, they felt that this is a moment, there's a crisis, let's inject ourselves into that, and they gradually seized power by the usual methods of propaganda, corruption, and violence within the Chechen um, opposition, let's call it this way, to not characterize it. And the worse the Russian onslaught began, the more people in Chechnya first went, you know what, these guys are fighting for us, let's, let's fight on their, I mean, we'd rather have them than the federals. So what happened then is, again, the same thing as in Syria, very similar. Eventually, the, the Wahhabis began their, cra- their crazy stuff that they usually do everywhere, which is, you know, slave markets, torture, uh, Sharia law applied in a completely primitive way, terror. I mean, they began to do all the stuff that we see in Syria, and that's when the Chechen population said, no, we don't want that. And that's when the person, of Ahmad Haji Kadyrov, and then his son came in, who said, basically, let's stop the, this war. It has to be stopped. We will get rid of the Wahhabis, which they did. But we also want our Muslim traditions to be fully respected, which they are, and they want not only um, cultural and economic autonomy, but the, uh, the, the center, because Putin did understand how important that was, put billions of rubles into rebuilding Grozny, which was flattened to the ground completely. Now it's one of the most prosperous cities. It's beautifully been rebuilt. So these two men basically, at the last second, changed the course of history, which could have been horrible. 
I'm speaking with author and analyst The Saker. Today's show, In Search of Russia. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now the uh, Wahhabi takeover of Chechnya was supported by the U.S. CIA, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Very much. And by the entire West. I mean, at that time, the European Parliament was receiving delegation of, of course, Chechen, what else? Freedom fighters. They didn't call them good terrorists then. They didn't call them Mujahideen, but they were, you know, freedom fighters and, you know, independentists, etc. The West was completely to the hilt pro-Chechen. Nobody cared about the horrors, the torture, the atrocities committed against Russian people first, and then against Chechen people by the Wahhabis. Nobody cared. The West got a little bit disgusted when the first English... Uh, technicians who were building cell towers in Chechnya began being decapitated, kidnapped, tortured. So when it hit eventually Western expat, there was sort of a little cold that happened. But as long as these guys were butchering the locals, the West was giving them a standing ovation. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. In your article, The Best Armed Forces on the Planet, you say that Russia is now the most powerful country on the planet because of two things— Russian rejection of the post-World War II U.S. worldwide hegemony and what it represents, and because of Vladimir Putin's rock-solid support of the Russian people. How does the Russian rejection of the U.S. model make Russia powerful? It makes Russia powerful out of proportion uh, with its her actual power economically or militarily, because it sets a moral, uh, it puts Russia in a position of moral leadership of resistance. Um, if you look, it all began with a speech, I think, in 2007 in Munich by Putin, who, you know, basically told the West bluntly in its face the truth about the hypocrisy of its, of its behavior, a contradiction, what we discussed last time between what it's supposed to stand for and what it really stands for. More recently, we had the speech uh, by Putin in the UN where he said, do you even understand what you have done? Speaking about the Middle East, um, the fact that Russians say that, and for instance, the Chinese never do, even though economically they're infinitely more powerful than the relatively small Russian economy, puts Russia in a unique position, which is the one to be the spokesman, the, the, not the leader in an organizational sense, but objectively we see it today again in Syria. Um, Russia is the country, the only one that can actually stop the U.S. in, in, in its tracks. And the Russians are willing to do that. Now, they're not doing that because, by the way, when I say they're willing to do that, I don't think they have much of an option. Um, most people realize in Russia that giving in and submitting to the Western uh, demands is essentially turning Russia into Ukraine. They don't want that. They see what's happening with the Ukraine across the border. They say, God forbid. They remember the 1990s, and there's just no way they're going to let that happen. So they took a stance, a firm one, already when the, the West one was on the borders of Russia. It's not, it didn't happen very early. When it was Serbia who was hit, uh, you know, Primakov turned his airplane in the air, the foreign minister flew back, and Russia protested, but that was about it, because it was an extremely weak country run by pro-Western uh, puppet regime. Uh, during the Medvedev years, Russia actually voted to put sanctions on Iran and even allowed um, a limited operation over Libya. I mean, the terms did not allow the West to do what it did, but it said all necessary means to implement the resolution. And after that, we had the breakup of Libya. Russia woke up late, and now she literally is fighting for her survival. But she did wake up, and she was willing to fight. Other countries are not even willing to fight for their survival. And I would put in that category all of Western Europe. 
they don't even have the spine to try to resist. Russia does. You debunk some popular myths about military strength, including the importance of numbers, high technology, and lots of expensive equipment. Could you talk about this in the context of the present-day Russian military? How would you characterize it? I would say that the biggest strength of the Russian military today is that um, the strategy, tactics, uh, force planning, everything that the Russian armed forces do today is commensurate with the capabilities of Russia and is limited to defense. Um, in other words, it's the opposite of what the U.S. does. U.S. has overreached over the entire planet, has anywhere between 700 to 1,000 military bases worldwide. That's why the U.S. spends such a huge amount of money um, on aggression. Uh, the Russians have absolutely no desire, contrary to what the neocons say, to be an empire. They've done it. They paid it too much a price. Russia has a purely defensive posture, has a very limited power projection capability. Actually, you can see that by the Russian operation in Syria, which in terms of numbers is actually very limited. And the truth is the Russian uh, armed forces are not organized to operate that far, a uh, sustain a military operation that far uh, as far as Syria. That's really the edge. Really what they're designed to do is to prevail in a belt about 500 to 1,000 kilometers out on the, across the perimeter of the Russian border, which is much more limited. It's much more defensive. Uh, so what makes them that strong is that basically they're relying on the home advantage. Uh, geography um, plays a huge, um, it's very to the Russian advantage. The fact that in order to hit the Russians, you have to get close to them is actually in military terms a huge advantage for Russia. Um, so for what it does, I think it's the, one of the best militaries or the best one right now in the world because of the kind of task it is given. It could never send, you know, uh, an expeditionary force to Mexico or invade Uruguay or something like that. But they don't even try. That's the big thing. They use limited resources to make sure that they can achieve a very limited means. And that means is to win a war against any um, opponent, including the US or NATO, in defense of Russia uh, on the air and land and, and sea. And if it gets a nuclear war, it is and full parity with the United States, I would actually give a, an advantage to Russian nuclear forces. So that is a perfect combination, having advanced forces, very highly motivated troops that changed a lot since the Chechen years where they couldn't even bring together a brigade. They couldn't create a single real brigade. They had to glue it together from smaller units. Uh, now all Russian units are a high degree of readiness. Uh, they're all equipped with modern gear. Uh, by uh, 2020, they're, they're supposed to have 70% of only modern gear everywhere across the Russian armed forces. So they're actually doing very well. And the key thing, again, is that their, their objectives will never be something that is beyond what they could actually do. What is the difference between Atlantic integration as opposed to Eurasian sovereignty? You have written that the group behind Medvedev is the Atlantic integrationists and the people behind Putin, the Eurasian sovereignists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fundamental difference that uh, really influences everything that happens in Russia today. Uh, so let's go back uh, to the arrival of Putin to power. Right before him, we had the regime of Yeltsin, which was an absolute disaster, a catastrophe. The country was literally breaking apart. I think Russia could have broken actually in two parts in, uh, in the late 1990s. It was an absolute apocalypse. So what happened? Two groups very different groups got together and said, okay, we need to do something about it. On one hand, it was big money, uh, oil industry, gas industry, 
you know, all the, the, the money group, the people, and that's um, Medvedev, and, um, and the people who pushed on Putin, who were the foreign intelligence service, but he really represented, I would say more generally, the security services. And they did a compromise. Um, something like I think was maybe tried with uh, Trump and Pence, which was we put one of you guys and one of us guys up there, and they sort of uh, will balance each other out. And it worked like that. It was pretty much, uh, on one hand, Dmitry Medvedev was, you know, representing the pro-Western, uh, you know, IMF type. Uh, his goal was to have Russia as an equal partner accepted by the West. I mean, he didn't apply for NATO, but I think I would not put it past him to do that or to become someone integrated in the European um, structures. He wanted Russia very much to become like maybe a big Poland or something like that. And, and, the, and the overriding, of course, um, you know, value of these people is money, money and economics. That's what they're, what's they're, they're in for. Putin came from a very different um, background. I would call him an officer. doesn't really matter that he was a foreign intelligence officer as opposed to a military officer. He comes from what's called in Russia the force ministries. It's the part of the country that, you know, the uh, special services, intelligence community, military, etc., and his view is a dramatically different one. These people are um, profoundly opposed to the Western civilizational model, have no desire of Russia becoming you know, part of the West. They know for one thing, they know it's futile. They will never be accepted by the West. So their idea is much more to, first of all, uh, re-sovereignize Russia. I don't think that's English, but I use that term, to make Russia fully sovereign again, which she still isn't. And secondly, to not turn uh, Russia's back on the West, but simply stop staring with fixation uh, towards the West. If you look at all the leaders that we discussed earlier in, uh, in the show, you know, from Peter the Great to, to Yeltsin, all of them, all of them, were constantly thinking about the West and what the West does in Europe, 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 Europe. And some of them were pro-European, others were less pro-European, but they were still kind of, that was the big thing. The important you know, direction was westward. Um, the people around Putin think very differently. They see the South, they see the East, including Siberia, and they even see the North, the, the Arctic Circle, which they think is extremely important. So they want to decouple Russia to a certain degree from the, the dollar, the Western economy, the Western legal systems, and basically just turn, shift Russia away uh, towards another um, civilizational model, and they also believe that the Russian values should be different from the ones that the West advocates. So it's a pragmatic, it's a cultural, and it's even a spiritual um, desire for a uniqueness of fully uh, fostering a distinct, separate Russian civilizational realm. And these two groups have been fighting each other. Uh, there still are. Now, the problem for the first group, the Atlantic Integrationist, is the personal fantastic popularity of Putin, which is not at all shared by Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, he's not that popular. Uh, his government is even less popular. So they're, they're keeping a low profile because right now they know it's not a good time for them. But they're still here, and uh, they're definitely the, the biggest threat for Putin. And they're the ones who constantly sabotage you know, what he's trying to do. So there's this internal struggle, which is very powerful, and in the last show, I compared it to the kind of struggle that we saw taking place shortly, but very strongly between, you know, the neocons and I would say Bannon Flynn, um, who were ejected. I mean, the ejections happen less often in Russia, 
but they're there. I mean, uh, the, the last score was uh, Putin scored well and be kicked out the Minister of Economics, which was particularly hated for a long while. So he's getting more and more strong, but he's far from having full control, very far from that still. Saker, thank you so much again. It's a huge pleasure, and thanks to you. I've been speaking with the Saker. Today's show has been In Search of Russia. The Saker was born in a military family of white Russian refugees in Western Europe, where he lived most of his life. After completing two college degrees in the United States, he returned to Europe, where he worked as a military analyst until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. After retraining as a software engineer, he returned to the United States, where he now lives with his family. He has been blogging since 2007 as The Saker, and his essays have attracted a large audience. He is the author of The Essential Saker, From the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World. Visit thesaker.is. That's the S-A-K-E-R dot I-S. I-S stands for Iceland. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Thank you.